Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Rolo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. And I'm Vivek. And in the new norm, Dan is missing. Yeah, this is pretty typical, Dan. We had a great episode that we recorded with a surgeon. She is amazing. You'll hear more about her as we go through this episode. She also, I think the best part of this was her fun fact. One of her fun facts was Go Birds as a Philly fan. I love that. It's going to be a great episode. I think you guys are going to love this episode. And as someone that has spent many years in and around Philadelphia prior to coming to Rural University, I am also a Philadelphia sports fan. So Go Birds indeed. Now, I don't want to get everybody too riled up, so before we keep on going with our Philadelphia sports talk, let's go ahead and roll that show. Guys, we're so excited for yet another episode on our breast cancer series, and this time we have another very special guest with us. We have Dr. Carla Fisher, who is an associate professor of surgery at the Indiana University School of Medicine, and she's also the medical director of their breast surgical oncology program. Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for being here this evening. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you guys. And we're excited to talk with you. You know, we have been having a lot of special guests join our show recently. And as you know, breast cancer is a very multidisciplinary field. And the way that we take care of our patients involves a lot of people. And as medical oncologists, we see a small piece of it. And so having conversations like this has been wonderful and eye-opening for us to hear about what all of our other colleagues are talking about with their patients. And it just helps us with counseling. So again, we're really excited to have you here. As we do with all of our guests, we want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, and we always love asking a fun fact of our guests. Sure. So I'm currently in Indianapolis. I came here by way of a couple of other cities, like probably most people who've done medical training. So I grew up in Pennsylvania, lived overseas. That might be part of my fun fact. And then was back in Pennsylvania for, for medical school, did my general surgery training at MUSC in Charleston, South Carolina. You know, one of the reasons I went into breast surgery was really the multidisciplinary aspect. So I think it's great you guys are doing this series. And I really love kind of the cross-disciplinary nature of breast cancer treatment. So did my breast fellowship at WashU, was in St. Louis for a little and left to go back to the East Coast, which is really home for me. I'm a big Philadelphia fan, Philadelphia Eagles fan. So go birds. <laughs> and was in practice for about six years before I was recruited to come out here to be the director. And it was really eye-opening to move to a city I hadn't been to before, but it's been a great experience and love my job. So yeah, really excited about my course. And then I guess, so the fun fact, so we lived in Japan and Singapore when I was little. And when my brother and I were living in Japan, we got to model clothing. So I like to tell people that I was a child model. That's awesome. For like a couple months. <laughs> That's really awesome. I'm actually going to Singapore in two weeks for part of my honeymoon. So I'm really excited and looking forward to doing that. Amazing country. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, it's important to know that anyone who's an Eagles fan is a diehard Eagles fan and is generally a Philly sports fan in general. So what do you think about the 76ers right now? Thinking good about it? What are your thoughts? I think as a Philadelphia fan, you feel good about things, but you're always just waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> But yeah, they're looking good so far. So we've had a really great year of Philadelphia sports. I know, it's crazy. 
I lived in and around Philadelphia and did residency there as well. So I'm from the New York area originally, but I quickly converted to be an Eagles fan, mainly because I was scared of my life to say I was a Giants fan at one point, but it is what it is. So <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. Vivek, I guess we'll start off with the case and kind of use that as our guide to start our discussion today. Yeah, it sounds great. So I'm going to kick us off with the case. So we have a 35-year-old woman with ERPR negative, HER2 positive invasive mammary carcinoma. She had no family history of breast cancer and noticed a new lump in her left breast enlarging over a month. She underwent a diagnostic mammogram that showed a BIRADS4 3.2 centimeter spiculated mass. She had an ultrasound-guided core biopsy that showed HER2 positivity 3 plus by IHC, and FISH showed greater than six copy numbers, so she had HER2-positive disease. She was notably grade two, which is intermediate grade, with no special type histology. And listeners, we have a whole episode dedicated to the principles of breast cancer and breast cancer vocabulary that we highly recommend you check out if any of that didn't make sense. And she also didn't have palpable lymphadenopathy on exam. She really wanted to have breast-conserving surgery, with a lumpectomy. We had planned to give her neoadjuvant chemotherapy with TCHP. So one of the things that happens often, and we talked about the multidisciplinary nature of breast cancer, is that these patients might see a surgeon and a medical oncologist on the same day. But as a surgeon, when you meet these patients, how do you determine if they're a candidate for something like a breast-conserving surgery? And I've seen MRI used frequently in these patients to look for multifocal disease and things like that. So can you tell us when that would be indicated or when you'd like to get something like an MRI? Sure. So I like to approach each patient that I see trying to give them as many options as possible. And so obviously that's going to include breast conserving surgery or lumpectomy, which I'll probably use that term, or mastectomy. And so the first thing I'm going to do is look at their imaging. That's really important to me. Look at the size of their tumor. But you know, you can have other findings like extent of calcifications, or if they've already had an MRI, they might have enhancement there. So I'm trying to get a sense of their imaging and how reliable it is. We'll maybe talk about that when we talk about MRI. And then the next step for me is going to be examining the patient. So we do ask patients for their bra cup size when we examine them. I do talk about that with them because at the end of the day, it's not just about the tumor size, it's really the tumor to breast ratio. And then once I have that information, then it's really the patient input. So again, some patients feel very strongly about mastectomy up front. So maybe I'm not going to be talking as much about breast conserving surgery, although I will always talk about it. And other patients are incredibly motivated for a lumpectomy, even though I might think they're borderline. So then I might know that I need to do an additional biopsy to prove extent of disease. The second question is about breast MRI. and you know, this was kind of a controversial topic. I think when it first came out, there were a lot of breast MRIs being done. The Choosing Wisely guidelines tell us that we should not be ordering breast MRI in all breast cancer patients, and, and most people don't. So for me, in this patient who I think is young, I think she's 35, and someone younger than 40, I'm going to be more likely to order a breast MRI. That's probably going to be related to the fact that her breasts are probably pretty dense as well. If I think that her imaging is not very great for her cancer, so let's say she's got a lobular cancer or her finding was very vague on a mammogram and so I don't know how well I'm able to see extensive disease, I'm going to get an MRI. In this patient who's going to get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, 
it can be very helpful for me before and after chemotherapy. So I, I like it more often in those scenarios as well. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And for us, you know, it's oftentimes in medical oncology, we have some of these conversations with our attendings and they're just kind of like, yeah, the surgeons like to have it, but this makes a lot of sense on the indications of why to get, you know, dense breasts. You need to rule out that the lumpectomy is going to get us good local disease control because we're trying to cure these women with their breast cancer. And it's really interesting the ratio between the cup size and the size of the tumor and all of these different things that are going into this. But let's say for this patient, back to her, she had no palpable lymphadenopathy. When do you consider additional imaging? And I know there's no necessarily standard here on whether we should image the axilla or not. So if we get the MRI, we're going to get that axillary imaging. But let's say we didn't get the MRI. When do you need to image the axilla in the setting of no palpable lymphadenopathy? Yeah, there's no sort of set criteria for this. So I will tell you that most patients who come to me with this diagnosis will probably already have had an axillary ultrasound. So that's pretty standard at my institution. And I know that's different in very radiology and, and surgeon, you know, it's a discussion we've had with our radiologist. So I interpret axillary ultrasounds different than perhaps somebody else would. So most of my patients will have it in this patient who's going to get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. It's probably not going to change what we're going to do. So I wouldn't specifically send her to get an axillary ultrasound, but let's say it's a patient who has a one centimeter triple negative breast cancer and node positivity could affect a recommendation for neoadjuvant. And I just want to complete that. We do talk about not staging the axilla in kind of the complete opposite group of patients. So in older patients with ER positive disease, we're starting to eliminate sentinel lymph node biopsy. And I think you're going to see that being done a lot more often. Most of the time we feel more comfortable omitting that with a negative clinical exam and negative imaging of the axilla. That makes a lot of sense. So maybe for that older patient that you're thinking about no sentinel lymph node biopsy, maybe that's a patient that you might be thinking about doing that ultrasound on the axilla. Exactly. Exactly. And as you mentioned, in this patient who's going to have a breast MRI, maybe for other reasons, that's going to image the axilla appropriately for me. So I'm not going to add on an axillary ultrasound specifically. I'll take a look at the axilla with the breast MRI. So what I'm also hearing from this is that I shouldn't just empirically order an MRI in anticipation for the surgeon's appointment if that is not something that's been done already. That's good to know. And I, I think it's nice to hear what you said, which is, you know, evaluate the situation. If it's going to change the outcome, then of course, you know, we can proceed with additional imaging and testing. It's intuitive, but I think, you know, something, at least for me, I find breast cancer to be very complicated. And so I want it to be very algorithmic. And I'm learning through all of this that we shouldn't be doing that and just continue to approach it as we do with any other type of hematologic or oncologic issue. Dr. Fisher, so one of the episodes that we had released recently, we had spoken with a breast radiologist. One of the things that they told us about is that they place clips when they do go in and they take biopsies, like for instance, in the axilla. Could you kind of tell us how this helps you as a surgeon and helps you do what the next steps are? Yeah, I mean, clips are a surgeon's best friend. So we need clips to kind of help us in the breast and in the axilla it can be especially helpful in patients who are node positive and you want to make sure that you're removing that lymph node 
I find it most helpful in patients who are node positive and then get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And we want to make sure that we're locating that clip because we're downstaging a lot of these patients. So oftentimes when we do a biopsy of a axillary lymph node, we'll actually place a clip that has a localizer device so that when we take that patient to the operating room, if that node is positive, I actually have a device in the operating room that helps me localize that. And we may talk about it if we don't talk about it now, but the downstaging of the axilla for women getting new adjuvant chemotherapy is so important and, and really an advancement that we've had over the last five to 10 years. So being able to put that clip in and taking that clip lymph node out after neoadjuvant chemotherapy can be a really crucial part of staging a woman's treatment response, which is really important for you guys, right? To be able to see if they have a pathologic complete response. Yeah, that is huge. Speaking of that, you know, what is the optimal time frame after neoadjuvant chemotherapy before they go to surgery? And is there anything, any additional imaging that you would recommend that we do before that next step in anticipation of them seeing you guys? Yeah. So ideally we like to operate on these patients about four to six weeks after they finish their cytotoxic chemotherapy. I think you can probably operate it three weeks, but probably not much sooner. And I will say with especially with the patients who are HER2 positive, who are going to be continuing on anti-HER2 directed therapy. If you don't meet that cutoff of six weeks, you can wait a little bit longer. But obviously there's a delicate balance between getting the chemotherapy out of their system. Some of these patients have more difficulty with chemotherapy than others. And then also being without any form of therapy. So again, for a triple negative breast cancer, you don't want to wait two to three months to operate. And I don't think any of us obviously would ever strive to do that. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And so let's proceed on with the case. And I really want to get into what you talked about with the clip placement and axillary staging and how that affects everything. So let's say that our patient completed her neoadjuvant chemotherapy and plans to proceed with surgery. Let's focus our discussion now on surgical staging of the axilla. So we've all heard the term in medical school or watching documentaries or whatever. I think the emperor of all maladies talked about this a lot, which was the Halstead mastectomy, that really old school cut as much as you can sort of approach. And we've also called the radical mastectomy. And that was a pretty morbid procedure, removed a significant amount of the pec muscles, extensive lymph node dissections. Thankfully, over time, we found out that it's not cutting more that's the answer necessarily. It's a combination approach between surgery and systemic therapy and, and also radiation therapy as well. So one question I had to you was when we talk about something like a modified Halstead mastectomy and a modified radical mastectomy, what exactly does this mean? Yeah, so the modified radical mastectomy is removal of the breast tissue, so the mastectomy and the axillary lymph node dissection. So we still do that quite commonly. Thankfully, the Halstead mastectomy is a thing of the past, although really only 40 or 50 years old. So in our lifetime, there are some patients who've had it, but we commonly perform modified radical mastectomies. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And so for our patient now, let's say that, so we had a patient that wanted to get this breast conserving lumpectomy. So I want to get a sense of recovery time for these patients before we maybe need to do something like an adjuvant, more adjuvant chemotherapy. So in HER2, whether they're going to get more Herceptin, Progetto, or they're going to maybe get Cadsila if they don't have that pathologic complete response. So what's the time frame? Is it that four to six week time frame after surgery that we think about before we can start systemic therapy again? 
Yeah, so it really depends on the type of surgery they're having and what you're looking to do in the adjunctive setting. Most patients following a lumpectomy could probably start chemotherapy two to three weeks later. For patients who are getting anti-HER2 directed therapy, I mean, that really can continue before, during, and after surgery. So we're not going to get it maybe the day before, day after as a patient's recovering, but I think it's important to note that most of the time it doesn't need to be paused and you certainly don't need to wait for them to recover from surgery to resume that. Radiation therapy is usually starting about three to five weeks. It certainly can start later after surgery. Most of my patients are going to end up seeing a medical or radiation oncologist about two to three weeks after they've completed their surgery. Again, in this scenario, we're kind of talking about a neoadjuvant patient, but let's say it's a patient who meets criteria for oncotype that may be ordered at that time. The radiation oncologist may be waiting on that information. And so again, by the time we get the pathology, they meet with the physicians. It might be four to five weeks before starting those additional therapies. And that's certainly within a reasonable time frame. Dr. Fisher, one of the critical studies that we had looked at in preparation for this discussion is the NSABP-B32 trial. And listeners, as always, we'll put a link to this in our show notes, so don't worry. But in this trial, they found that patients who had clinically node-negative breast cancer did just as well with a sentinel lymph node biopsy to dictate further surgical axillary dissection rather than just going and doing upfront axillary dissection for all patients. And so Could you kind of walk us through what a sentinel lymph node biopsy is and what that process entails? And also, how many lymph nodes do you go after? Yeah, so that was an important trial. Interestingly, it was published when we were already really doing sentinel lymph node biopsies for patients who were negative and not performing axillary dissection. So it was a good trial to confirm that we were doing the right thing, but it came out many years after we were really already sort of doing sentinel lymph nodes for clinically node-negative patients. The sentinel lymph node is the one or few lymph nodes that if a cancer was going to spread, that it would spread there first. And so the idea is that we inject patients with usually two types of dye. Usually it's a blue dye, and then we have a radioactive dye. I inject it in the operating room. It can also be injected preoperatively. and Then at the time of surgery, you explore the axilla and usually you're removing two to three lymph nodes. Sometimes it's one lymph node, sometimes it's five or six lymph nodes, but the average is two to three. And the idea is that if those lymph nodes are negative, there is a very, very low chance that there's additional disease in the axilla that has carcinoma. It is not zero, but with good technique, it's in the low percentages, single digits. It makes a lot of sense. And the sentinel lymph node biopsy is such an important thing that we use now so that we can not do a full axillary dissection in in many of these patients, which is a big deal. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is when we think about a patient, let's change the case a little bit. Let's say that we had this 35-year-old HER2 positive disease, but she had positive movable lymph nodes in her axilla, and she had biopsy-proven HER2 positive disease in her axillary lymph nodes. We gave her this neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we placed that clip, and now she's coming to you in surgery. For that patient, let's say after the neoadjuvant therapy too, she's clinically node negative now, so the node shrunk. 
When do you think about doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy in a patient like that? Yeah, so I think about doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy all the time in a patient like that. And this has really evolved over my career. So I think one of the things I didn't answer earlier was about imaging following neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And so for both the breast and the axilla, in a patient like this, oftentimes I will get a breast MRI following neoadjuvant chemo. So this patient obviously had clinically palpable nodes. She's now negative. So we know she's responded, but I'm also going to take a look a little bit further with the MRI. It's highly likely that we're going to see lymph nodes that have shrunk in that area. And then I'm going to consent the patient for a sentinel lymph node biopsy with a possible axillary dissection. And what we learned from the clinical trial that you guys just talked about, NSABPB32, are sort of what expected false negative rates are. And so at the end of the day, what you want, what I want, what the patient wants is for me to be able to stage the axilla. And if I give you two to three lymph nodes and they're both negative, we all feel confident that there is no residual disease in the axilla. And so we've looked at this pretty extensively in the surgical literature. And so again, in this patient scenario, I will take her to the operating room. I'm going to perform my sentinel lymph node biopsy as normal with the radioactive dye and the blue dye. And then once those lymph nodes are removed, I'm either going to x-ray them or if I have my localizer device, I'm going to be able to tell if that initially clipped lymph node is part of those sentinel lymph nodes. If it is not, I will then use my localizer device to find that lymph node. And then the goal is that I'm going to remove at least two lymph nodes. And whether I do a frozen section then or wait on the final pathology, if my lymph nodes are negative, then we're going to stop there. So we've downstaged this patient from an axillary dissection or potential axillary dissection up front to a sentinel lymph node biopsy following neoadjuvant chemo. And we also know that in a patient like this, specifically with HER2 positive disease, her chance of having a complete pathologic response in her axilla can be upwards of 60%. So more often than not, I'm getting negative sentinel lymph nodes in this scenario, which is such a huge win for our patients and for us in this scenario. Yeah, definitely. And talking about it now, so now we, you just mentioned the frozens that you would ask for when you're in the OR. So let's say you're getting these sentinel lymph node biopsies. One thing that always confused me early on in fellowship, especially, and I want all of our listeners to hear this from you, is we see in the pathologic staging, they talk about microscopic disease in the lymph node versus the PNM1 sort of thing. When you're in the OR, what are they exactly telling you when you're getting that lymph node? Are they saying, hey, there's microscopic disease here? Or are they just looking at the H&E and saying, hey, there's cancer here? Good question. You mean when I'm getting a frozen section when the pathologist? So yeah, I mean, yeah, the pathologist is calling me and they're telling me any range of information. It can be difficult when you're talking about frozen sections in somebody who had node positive disease, so cancer in their nodes, got chemotherapy, probably has some sort of chemotherapy response, and then has surgery versus doing a frozen section kind of in a native axilla up front. So that can be one of the challenges of doing frozen section post-neoadjuvant. It can be done, but you know I think the accuracy or the false negative rate is probably a little higher. They can tell you any range of there's cancer here, there's suspicion for cancer. I've gotten that a couple of times in patients who are initially 
node positive? Because again, they don't have all their tools there to utilize. You know, we're asking them to make a pretty quick decision and that's why full sentinel lymph node sampling or pathologic sampling can be helpful. I have occasionally had them tell me that they see microscopic disease. So I think they can get that level of information. But that's why frozen sections are less often used just because there's so many pieces of information that we like to incorporate into our decision-making for more surgery. And you're not necessarily kind of getting all of that right in that moment. I have a related, sort of related question. The concept of uh, no ink on the margin is something that I've had to Google multiple times and I find it conceptually hard to understand. So let's say our patient undergoes a lumpectomy and we say that there's no ink on the tumor. Could you kind of explain what that means and how do you make that assessment? Are you physically just looking at the sample and you can see no ink or is this something that a pathologist is helping you understand? Yeah, I mean, this is really a pathologic finding. So no ink on tumor is just what it sounds like. You can have a tumor and then if you've got one layer of fat cells, you know, microscopically and that are kind of bordering that tumor, that's no ink on tumor. So as surgeons, we're always getting what I would call grossly negative margins. So I'm taking out, if I'm doing a lumpectomy, I'm getting a grossly negative margin. Oftentimes I'm imaging that specimen in the operating room. So I can see that mass with some surrounding fatty tissue. So sometimes my radiologists, when they call into the OR, will say, you've got radiologically negative margins. And then, you know, what we know about breast cancer is that it's not just a focal mass. And it can be sort of the main tumor mass with sort of satellite lesions and certain ER positive cancers with lots of DCIS might have a lot of kind of microscopic lesions. So most of the time with a lumpectomy, when you're seeing no tumor on ink, a lot of times it's that kind of microscopic disease around it. And, you know, I like to point out the surgeon input in terms of our gross margins, because one area where this will come up sometimes is, let's say when I'm doing a mastectomy and I'm pulling the breast off of the pectoralis muscle and I'm taking the pectoralis fascia with me. And let's say I have a tumor that I know is close to my posterior margin, but I'm able to get a nice posterior margin. The pectoralis fascia is intact. So I know that my gross margin is negative. I know that this woman's tumor is not involving her chest wall, but the pathologist may say microscopic disease at the posterior margin or tumor abutting the posterior margin. And just like most things in what we do, there's not just one piece of information that makes our decisions, right? We've got to kind of correlate different pieces of information to kind of decide what else needs to be done. So does radiation need to be done? Do we need to do more surgery? You got to look at it a couple of different ways. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I thought that no ink on the tumor, you know, I'm like, maybe the surgeon's just looking at it, looking for blue stuff on the tumor, but it's clearly a little bit more complicated than that. I literally thought that's what, and that's why, thank you for answering that in a very straightforward way. It makes a lot more sense. It's really funny. <laughs> it was really early on in fellowship. I'm, I'm just like, they must be, you know, NCCN selling me no ink on the tumor. It's got to be there looking at, it, there's no blue stuff there. I mean, it had been so long, I think that I've been in an OR, you know, and I got scared away from the OR. And so this is good to know. This is very good to know. <laughs> this is good discussion. And yeah, I mean, some surgeons will technically ink their lumpectomies in the operating room, but most of the time that's done in pathology. So, I mean, they literally paint if it's a square, you know, like blue is the top and green is the bottom for sky and grass. And, you know, they're looking at, are there tumor cells that are kind of under the microscope, sort of up against that blue or green or yellow or red? That makes so much sense. So 
to finish out the discussion, let's say that we have a patient who has undergone surgery and they want breast reconstruction later on. A lot of times we see this thing about a tissue expander that these patients get. Can you tell us a little bit about what is a tissue expander and the timeline for them to get definitive breast reconstruction? Sure. So there's a lot of different ways you can go about breast reconstruction. I'll try to kind of summarize the vast majority of scenarios. So following a mastectomy, a patient has several options. There's a big push these days on going flat. So some patients want a flat chest wall. If they want reconstruction, then obviously a plastic surgeon would be involved. And there's two basic types of breast reconstruction. There's implant-based and there's tissue-based. So like flaps, we think about deep flaps or tram flaps, taking fat from the abdomen or muscle from the back, a little bit older technique. But most of the time, the reconstruction will start with the placement of a tissue expander. And then at a second operation, the final reconstruction is done. So I tell patients to think about tissue expanders as essentially placeholders. So when the breast surgeon, somebody like me performs a skin sparing or nipple sparing mastectomy, most of the time a plastic surgeon will be there for concurrent tissue expander placement. That is not always done, and some of that has to do with patient-related factors. Sometimes it's institutional and just availability of plastic surgeons. Obviously, there's a lot of coordinating involved with those concurrent surgeries. But when I was training, those tissue expanders always went behind the pectoralis muscle. So you can imagine that was kind of painful. More recently, we use pre-pectoral tissue expander or implant placement where the tissue expander is placed on top of the muscle in a sleeve, usually of a different types of mesh. And that is much more comfortable for patients postoperatively and I think has some really good cosmetic outcomes. So again, the plastic surgeon will place the tissue expander and then depending on what the patient's next course of therapy is. So let's say the patient's going to need post-mastectomy radiation therapy Oftentimes that tissue expander will stay in place, get radiated, and then definitive reconstruction will happen later. That said, plastic surgeons have all sorts of different ways of going about doing this. Some plastic surgeons prefer to do definitive reconstruction with flap reconstruction before radiation. So you can go about it different ways, but most of the time it's going to be a breast surgeon and a plastic surgeon operating at the same time. I haven't taken care of any younger patients myself personally that have had breast cancer. And so I never even thought about the fact that these conversations are being had before they go to the OR because it requires planning while they're in the OR. So that was very insightful for me to know. I want to move on to another case. So let's say we have a 35-year-old female with a three and a half centimeter tumor. This time she's ER, PR positive, HER2 negative breast cancer. She's very nervous about getting cancer in her contralateral breast, and in fact, she has a maternal aunt who had breast cancer at the age of 55. So Dr. Fisher, from your perspective, how do you counsel patients on the risks and benefits of a contralateral mastectomy, and which patients would you definitely recommend they proceed to get one of these, or in what patient population would you recommend this procedure if they wanted it? Yeah. So this is a conversation I have almost daily with patients who I'm meeting with, sort of talking about their surgical options, but really talking about contralateral prophylactic mastectomy. I think the first thing to discuss with the patient is 
what we're really worried about when we talk about doing a contralateral or a patient desires a contralateral mastectomy. Oftentimes, patients will express that they want to prevent their cancer from one breast moving into their other breast. And so I try to explain to them that that is actually very uncommon and not what we're worried about. What they're really trying to mitigate is the risk of a second cancer coming in their contralateral breast. And we know that that risk is probably around 0.5 to 1% per year, probably for this patient who's going to be on adjuvant endocrine therapy, that's going to serve as a risk-reducing agent for her contralateral breast and provide, obviously, a protective effect over there. So I just try to put that in numbers. So that means in 20 years, when this woman is 55, she will have a 10% risk of developing a contralateral breast cancer. And what's interesting is that for some patients, they go, oh, yeah, that's a pretty small number. And for other patients, it's like, oh, 10%, that's a really high number. So I think putting that out there and seeing what that means to her is important. You talked a little bit about her maternal aunt having breast cancer. So I know we're not going to talk specifically about genetics, but obviously genetic testing and the implications of that have to come up when you're having this discussion with a patient. There are very few patients where I would say that they have to have a bilateral mastectomy. I think when we think of genetic mutations like BRCA1 and BRCA2 and other high-risk mutations, the teaching has always been they need bilateral mastectomies. And I think there's more recent data showing that there's no survival benefit to that. And that in fact, lumpectomy radiation can be pursued with reasonable recurrence or new cancer risk in the index breast, although there's still a high risk of development of breast cancer in the contralateral breast, definitely higher than that 10%. And those patients can be followed with mammogram and MRI. There's probably not a ton of patients who want to be followed that way. But again, I think it's important for patients to have choice. And so just making sure that those patients know that just because you're BRCA positive doesn't mean you have to have it. Here's why you might have it. Here's what's good and bad. I do see patients not uncommonly who've had prior mantle cell radiation who develop breast cancers. And I would say that might be one indication where I'd probably lean towards a bilateral mastectomy in that scenario. But again, depending on circumstances, lumpectomy may be feasible. But again, we struggle with re-irradiation in those scenarios. Makes a lot of sense. And and I'm sure that this actually comes up in conversations with us when we see these patients. And for me, it, it's difficult, you know, especially for those practicing in the community. And it's a common thing that happens. And you'll see it in medical oncology and the surgeons, you know, you guys are really the ones who are Oftentimes, we can always have the cop out of, why don't you talk to the surgeon about the risk benefit of that? So it's good to hear how you think about it and how you counsel some of the patients on it. I want to go through another interesting aspect for a patient with a ERPR positive tumor. So let's say we had this patient. She's got this 3.5 centimeter tumor, and you are planning for a lumpectomy and, and let's say a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Let's say she had a negative exam that you did, and the sentinel lymph node biopsy was positive. And let's say that when we got the biopsy, she had a low-grade tumor. She was grade one. People in tumor boards always say Z11, and they're like, oh, Z11 is a controversial thing. And everything I feel like in the surgery literature, it's a bunch of letters. So this one's, I think, ACOSOG Z0011. Of course, it's a bunch of letters and numbers. But essentially what that trial was looking at was it was saying, hey, if we have a positive sentinel lymph node biopsy, what if we didn't continue on with that axillary lymph node dissection in a patient who's going to get adjuvant, let's say, endocrine therapy afterwards. So 
What are your thoughts on that? And when would you not continue with the axillary lymph node dissection and the setting of a positive sentinel lymph node biopsy? Yeah, we discussed this a lot at Tumor Board and at our annual breast surgery meeting. So Z11 was controversial when it was initially published for a lot of reasons. I mean, essentially, you know, something we'd been doing for a long period of time, we were told we didn't need to do, and we were knowingly leaving behind disease in the axilla. And again, just kind of speaks to kind of how we think about cancers and paradigms that we have. I'd say it's less controversial, obviously, what, 14, 13 years later. And in a patient like this, if she had one or two positive sentinel lymph nodes, I wouldn't hesitate to not do anything additional in her axilla. A patient like this is going to be a little controversial, and you're not going to get any group of surgeons who all agree on this if she has three or four sentinel nodes that are all positive, because she's going to technically not meet the Z11 criteria that we talk about so often, but she's going to get comprehensive nodal radiation, and many of us are hesitant to recommend an axillary dissection in this setting along with axillary radiation. And so when we get to those patients, I think tumor board discussion is important and also what the patients desire. But I think, to be honest, most people would probably stop at sentinel lymph node biopsy knowing she's going to get radiation. When Z11 was envisioned and published, the idea is that these patients were getting whole breast radiation and that part of whole breast radiation includes the lower axilla. There were patients in the clinical trial who did receive dedicated nodal irradiation. And so one of the things that we focus on at Tumor Board is what the surgeon's going to do. And I think we often don't talk to the radiation oncologist because they're going to radiate that axilla and they're going to do nodal radiation. And so this woman, whether she has one or two positive sentinel nodes and meets Z11 criteria, she's going to get whole breast irradiation and she's going to get nodal irradiation as well. And so that is similar, but also kind of different from kind of the vision of Z11. But it really speaks to kind of the de-escalation of surgery and the escalation of radiation in these patients. So we're not kind of we're stopping some of the things we do surgically, but we're doing more radiation in that setting. It makes so much sense. And I know that we think about the lymphedema risk and some of those things with the large axillary nodal dissection that doing something like radiation can make a lot of sense in these women. And just for our listeners to know, we think about the Z11 criteria, and this is coming from a lowly medical oncologist here who doesn't know everything, who really does malignant hematology mainly, but I think I know it. So it's smaller tumors, ER positive, lower grade. That's just a brief outline generally. T1, T2 tumors, things like that, lower grade, ER positive, and the patient's committed to getting adjuvant therapy afterwards. And so it's really cool to know that we're And really cool to see what's going to happen in the future when we think about some of these patients and with how we're doing with pathologic CRs now, even in triple negative disease with the new therapies out there, it's it's pretty cool to see what's going to happen. You pointed out the criteria, which I think is really important. The other thing is that this trial did not include patients who had neoadjuvant chemo. So we cannot automatically apply these principles to a patient who's received neoadjuvant chemotherapy and has one to two positive nodes. We do occasionally, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but that is not Z11 criteria, and that's a whole different 
biology of tumor that you're potentially dealing with. There's a lot of clinical trials in this space right now. And I think a lot of us are anxiously awaiting the results of those, but it's really important to know that Z11 was upfront surgery. It's a good reminder. So Dr. Fisher, I want to end today's discussion with a little bit of a discussion about inflammatory breast cancer. And so for our last patient scenario, let's say we have a 45-year-old female who presents to her per PCP office with complaints of a swollen, red, and tender right breast. She reports that the breast has become visibly larger. She's noticed some dimpling in the skin. She has no history of trauma to the area, and she also does endorse a recent 10-pound weight loss. On exam, her right breast is visibly enlarged with redness, warmth, and that pew du orange appearance of the skin. And the breast is tender on palpation, and the axillary lymph nodes are palpable. She's sent for a biopsy of the breast, which does reveal invasive ductal carcinoma. And ultimately, this is HER2 negative, ER negative, and PR negative, so triple negative. A CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis is performed, which shows no evidence of metastasis and she got neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So from a surgical perspective, how do you think about the timing of a mastectomy in these patients? Is it fair to say that all of these patients will get axillary lymph node dissections and radiation as well? Yes. So I would say the timing of mastectomy is going to be the same as the other patients getting neoadjuvant approximately four to six weeks. Again, because this patient's triple negative, you definitely want to make sure that you're getting it done before six weeks if possible. And currently, the patient would meet criteria for modified radical mastectomy and post-mastectomy radiation therapy. There is some interest in the surgical groups about de-escalating management of the axilla. As we know, inflammatory breast cancer usually involves involvement of the dermal lymphatics, which could potentially affect the accuracy or ability to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So we don't know if it'll be feasible, but just like we've seen in other patients getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy, you have good responders and bad responders. And in patients who have a great inflammatory breast cancer clinically upfront and an excellent response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, do we really need to be doing axillary dissections in all of those patients? For now, as of this recording, yes, 100%. But the good news is we're sort of looking to de-escalate in the future, but I think that's still a good ways away. And on the flip side, if they didn't respond to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, do you still proceed to surgery or would you recommend kind of deviating from that course a little bit? And if so, what would you recommend? Those are really tough scenarios, right? So we know that inflammatory breast cancer is going to be a more aggressive cancer. And we know that the drugs that we use for patients, triple negative, they're not the most effective, but they're relatively effective. And so if you've got a patient who has this biologically aggressive cancer and is not responding, unfortunately, that's not a good prognostic sign for the patient. And I've had a couple of patients in this scenario, I think making sure that any medical options available to them are offered. So if you're at a center where clinical trials are not available, this would definitely be a patient that you want to see if there's any medical options or clinical trial options for them. And I think discussion between medical oncologist and surgeon and patient about goals of therapy need to be had. But honestly, if you have a 
true inflammatory breast cancer and a lot of skin involvement and they're not responding, then the value of surgery is pretty much zero. If they've had um, some response and then perhaps are starting to lose a response, you might have a small window of aggressive local therapy. And I think most of us know that the benefit of that aggressive local therapy is probably small, but if it's not zero, then it, if there's some benefit, we're willing to try. Yeah, it makes so much sense because the systemic control of the disease is key in these patients. You know, we think about such an aggressive disease biology, and we see it time and time again in medical oncology that if we're not getting good systemic control, we do all this local control that can be very morbid, you know, we may not be benefiting these patients. And I also thought it was really interesting when we talked about when you were talking about the dermal lymphatic system being disrupted and how that could potentially affect sentinel lymph node biopsy, that makes a lot of sense conceptually to me. And you know, one of the things that was hard for me to understand is inflammatory breast cancer is really a clinical diagnosis, not necessarily needs a pathologic diagnosis, but that's one of the things that's part of that pathologic diagnosis that we see in inflammatory breast cancer. The last thing that, that we wanted to ask you before we end the segment today in what cases do we think about doing a palliative procedure for a woman with a breast cancer and breast pain? I don't know exactly, in my head at least, I can't think of a good scenario when to refer to you guys or when would you think about something like radiation? Can you just give us a little bit of insight into which women would benefit from something like a palliative operation? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a nuanced decision. And We've had quite a few trials over the last couple of years that have been published showing that there's no benefit to surgery or local therapy in stage four breast cancer. So it is not routine. I would say I get asked to consider palliative mastectomies in scenarios where a patient has stable disease for many years or a year on therapy that appears to be working for them and perhaps on follow-up scans or exam, they have a breast mass that is growing while their metastatic disease is stable or they've got no evidence of metastatic disease NED on imaging elsewhere. So the only area of disease that seems to be causing a problem is in the breast we wonder sometimes if that has to do with the primary tumor site. We wondered about that when we talked about the clinical trials for local therapy and stage four breast cancer. Nothing kind of came of that, but you know, we know that maybe there are some exceptions. Occasionally you have a patient with a local issue. So we tend to see this with maybe bleeding from a tumor coming through the skin or maybe a fungating mass that is draining or foul smelling, causing the patient some discomfort. Occasionally I will do a mastectomy in that case as well. Obviously, radiation is another option depending on the scenario. So if you have a fungating breast mass and it's bleeding and they otherwise don't have good control of the metastatic disease, then radiation for those symptoms makes the most sense. Dr. Fisher, I thought today's conversation was 
incredible. And it's always so helpful to, again, hear your perspective, hear what your thought process is as you're evaluating your patients. And at the end of the day, I think the thing that I take away from all this is it provides me context so that when we are seeing these patients in our office, if they do have questions about some of the surgical management of their disease, at least I have some context and understanding about the vocabulary and the language and the general approach so that we can provide some reassurance and some guidance. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an awesome episode, and I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this. Thank you so much for having me. I think what you guys are doing is great. And like I said, I think the multidisciplinary aspect of breast cancer is important and you guys are really focusing on it. So thank you so much for having me. Of course. Any final thoughts that you have for our listeners or any key takeaways you'd like them to walk away with? I think one of the things I would say is it's been part of the theme of what I've discussed today is how much we've been able to de-escalate therapy for breast cancer patients. I'm really fascinated about the history of medicine and specifically the history of breast cancer treatment. You know, we touched on the Halstead mastectomy just for a second. We also talked about sort of downstaging patients to sentinel lymph node biopsies and potentially no sentinel lymph node biopsies. So I think it's really a credit to obviously the physicians that were in these positions before us and the patients who've enrolled on clinical trials to kind of help us do this. But I think it's really been, it's such an amazing field to be a part of. Yeah, it's really fantastic to see where our entire field has gone, particularly in breast cancer is one of the prototypes of de-escalation works, you know, and then we started applying that to other tumors and it's been great and and circulating tumor DNA, who knows what's going to happen. It's going to be really exciting to see what happens in the next 10, 15 years and in, in all of our cancer types. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. So until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. See you later.